Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. Good to be with you this morning. If it's your first time with us, my name is Landon, and I have the, the privilege of being one of the, uh, the team members here at uh, Restoration Church. As Whitney said, if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and turn to Matthew chapter 5, which is where we'll, we'll spend most of our, our time uh, this morning. I uh, have been reading this book the past uh, couple of weeks. That's been a really uh, fantastic book. It's very different uh, than a lot of the books I read. It's called uh, the, what is it called? I think it's called The Human Body, A Guide for Occupants by uh, the author Bill Bryson. I did not like science too much as a, a student growing up. I wasn't very great at it, but this one's pretty fascinating, and I like this author, so I've picked it up and read it. My wife, on the other hand, she's a nurse. She really likes science and biology, anatomy, all of these things, which then led to, to nursing eventually. The kind of funny part about that, though, is in high school, we, we dated in high school here, and our senior year, I had the best schedule in the world. It was glorious. It was like early bird economics, then I had powerlifting, then I had, I don't remember what, then I had an hour off, and then I was a, a TA, and then I had like statistics or something. It was great. Well, my hour off coincided when Chelsea, who I was dating at the time, had anatomy, which she was very good at. She had like an A+, plus, but she actually failed the class because she ditched so often to spend time with me, so it was not great for her. You can be really confident in her nursing ability. <laughs> So this book, The Body of God for Occupants, let me read you a little quote from it I thought was really good. It's almost as if this author, who's not a Christian, uh, it's not a Christian book, is making an argument uh, for a divine designer unintentionally. He says this, the body is often likened to a machine, but it is so much more than that. It works 24 hours a day for decades without, for the most part, needing regular servicing or the installation of spare parts, runs on water and a few organic compounds, is soft and rather lovely, is accommodatingly mobile and pliant, reproduces itself with enthusiasm, <laughs> makes jokes, feels affection, appreciates a red sunset and a cooling breeze. How many machines do you know that can do any of that? There is no question about it. You are truly a wonder. I love that. I thought that was a fantastic paragraph. While it is fantastic in my mind, it has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but I thought it was worth sharing anyway. What we're actually going to talk about is this paragraph from his book. He continues to write this. You have about 100,000 microbes per square centimeter of your skin and they are not easily eradicated. According to one study, the number of bacteria on you actually rises after a bath or shower because they are flushed out from the nooks and crannies. That's kind of gross. 
But even when you try scrupulously to sanitize yourself, it is not easy. To make one's hands safely clean after a medical examination requires thorough washing with soap and water for at least a full minute, a standard that is in practical terms all but unattainable for anyone dealing with lots of patients. It is a big part of the reason why every year some two million Americans pick up a serious infection in the hospital and 90,000 of them die of it. The greatest difficulty, Atul Gawande has written, is getting clinicians like me to do the one thing that consistently halts the spread of infections, wash our hands. I really just wanted to instill some confidence in you for the next time you have to make a uh, visit to the, the hospital. Statistically and practically speaking, that reality, those numbers, do not mean that you shouldn't go to the hospital when you need to go to the hospital. If for some reason in our ignorance we decided, hey, two million people get sick by going to the hospital every year. 90,000 people will die based on infections, diseases, whatever that they get during their time at the hospital. So you know what? We should just do away with hospitals. No one should ever go to a hospital again. Let's shut them all down because bad things can happen when you go to a hospital. That would be really dumb, right? Because way more people, exponentially more people would die as a result of that. I mean, not even comparable. It would be tragic and terrible than the 90,000 that do die, than the 2 million that do get infected by something. And we don't want to make light of the 90,000 lives that are lost. That's significant. That needs to be dealt with. But that's not reason to then swing the pendulum throw the baby out with the bathwater and give up on hospitals, that would be a foolish choice. It's similar when it comes to following Jesus. If you follow Jesus with a community of people, you practice trusting Jesus in the everyday stuff of life with other people, this is what we call a church, if you hear some teaching, if you study the scriptures, if you're praying and reading and studying, the fact is that along the way, you are going to pick things up that are undesirable. You are going to pick things up along the way that are not healthy for you. Unintended consequences that will actually cause harm. These in the, the medical community are referred to as iatrogenic conditions, a state of ill health or adverse effect caused by medical treatment. And in the church, as Christians, we would be foolish to think that we're not gonna pick up our own iatrogenic values, beliefs, traditions along the way. Now, that's not a reason to quit following Jesus. That's not a reason to discard the scriptures. It's not a reason to not be in community with other followers of Christ. But it is definitely a reason to get our head out of the sand and to be honest and realistic about the harmful things that do happen along the way. And so that's why we're in the middle of this D and Reconstruction series. In our, our third week, if you're in, in one of our practice groups, uh, I quoted the book After Doubt by A.J. Swoboda uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was teaching. I want to read you what he says on this topic. He says this. When someone goes to the hospital, they seek healing, and healing hopefully happens. But any visit to a hospital puts a patient at risk, for there are countless individuals with diseases, illnesses, and contractible sicknesses at the hospital. These illnesses are contracted when, ironically, one goes to the hospital to get better. 
The category for this in the medical community is iatrogenic diseases. That is also how the gospel works. While we may receive the life-changing story of Jesus, a love for the Bible, a heart for justice, a commitment to mission, we will likely pick up some iatrogenic beliefs from that community as well that we'll have to heal from later on. I'm going to go back to uh, Bill Bryson's book on the body to offer you a little bit more encouragement. For years, Britain operated a research facility called the Common Cold Unit, but it, is closed, it was closed in 1989 without ever finding a cure. It did, however, conduct some interesting experiments. In one, a volunteer was fitted with a device that leaked a thin fluid at his nostrils at the same rate that a runny nose would. The volunteer then socialized with other volunteers, as if at a cocktail party. Unknown to any of them, the fluid contained a dye visible only under ultraviolet light. When that was switched on after they had been mingling for a while, the participants were astounded to discover that the dye was everywhere, on the hands, head, and upper body of every participant, and on glasses, doorknobs, sofa cushions, bowls of nuts, you name it. The average adult touches his face 16 times an hour, and each of those touches transferred the pretend pathogen from nose to snack bowl to innocent third party to doorknob to innocent fourth party and so on until pretty much everyone and everything bore a festive glow of imaginary snot. So that's comforting while we're here with a lot of people. Shaking hands later. In a similar study at the University of Arizona, researchers infected the metal door handle to an office building and found it took only four hours for the virus to spread through the entire building, infecting over half of employees and turning up on virtually every shared device like photocopiers and coffee machines. So have fun spreading all of that amongst each other when we uh, wrap up today. When I read that, I was not overcome with anxiety and thinking, you know what, I never want to go to a party again or spend time with people or celebrate anything. Although, I'm a little bit more apprehensive now, if I'm honest. The the whole snot piece was a little gross and disturbing. What it did, though, is give me a little bit of perspective and awareness that maybe I didn't have. And I think perspective and awareness are two things we should seek to have as we go through this DN reconstruction process. Perspective and awareness are two things that should be at the forefront of our process when it comes to considering these distorted, twisted beliefs or values that maybe knowingly or unknowingly have been handed down to us and maybe knowingly or unknowingly have been handed down from us to others. Perspective and awareness are also what Jesus provided for his disciples as they dealt with their own iatrogenic beliefs and values and teachings and customs and their own culture at their own time. On the other hand, Satan takes these iatrogenic beliefs, values, traditions. He uses them as catalysts, as hooks to to take people and to cause them to throw the baby out with the bathwater, to cause them to completely leave Jesus, to ignore or reject the scriptures, to isolate away from community and the church because of often something very real and something really harmful yet it's an isolated thing that isn't worthy of leaving the goodness of Christ for, but it's something that does need to be addressed. 
And I'm afraid what often happens in the church is we just leave our head in the sand. We don't deal with these real things that need to be addressed. And so again, so what this series is about, both Satan and Jesus want you to deconstruct. Both Satan and Jesus want to use these iatrogenic beliefs, values, customs, etc., as a catalyst in a way. But that's where their similarities end because Satan and Jesus could not have different destinations or desires or hope for outcomes for your deconstruction process. We uh, put it this way in uh, this practice booklet. You have one if you are in one of our, our practice groups. The map for deconstruction designed by Satan has just one step, destruction. While destruction in and of itself is neither positive or negative, if the pathway for it has been led by Satan, it will only end with a massive void, a vacuum sucking the life out of the adventurer on the journey. What began with captivating questions, promising a better future, a formula of subtract this, gain that, will eventually be known for what it actually is. Only subtraction, just loss, just pain. The problem with Satan's pathway for deconstruction, though, is that subtracting part of the process can feel so good. It isn't until later that we realize the chasm that has been created and that we are left all alone in the dust and ashes with no hope of rebuilding. We're going to spend the, the rest of our time this morning looking at the pathway, the steps, the process that Jesus calls us to follow in the DNA reconstruction process instead of the pathway that Satan takes us on. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. This is part of what's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read Matthew 5 through 7, there's this repetition. Jesus will say multiple times, you have heard it said, but I say to you again and again and again. He's deconstructing and reconstructing. Here's a, a part of that in verse 31. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever remarries, or whoever marries a divorced woman, commits adultery. In this passage, uh, Jesus does three things. Number one, this is his process in DNA reconstruction. Number one, he looks back at the original intent of God's design, whether that was a law, uh, the heart of the law, instruction, personal communication to somebody. He looks back at the original intent and design. Number two, Jesus assesses the present moment compared to God's original intent. And then number three, Jesus remodels accordingly. So we're going to walk through that process as Jesus did. First, he looked back. The original law that he's talking about is in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 5, depending on the, the Bible that you're looking at. What, part of what we just read might have been in bold, and that would have been the part that was a direct quote from Deuteronomy 24. Let me read this. Let me read this. If a man marries a woman... But she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper about her. He may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from her house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord." You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Verse 5 is key because it's the heartbeat of this whole law. When a man takes a bride, he must not go out 
Think about this. He must not go out with the army or be liable for any duty. He is free to stay at home for one year so that he can bring joy to the wife he has married. This is actually really significant. Think about this. At this time and day, if you were in a war, which Israel was about to be in a whole lot of wars, they were almost always under threat, you would want every single soldier and warrior possible to go to war to defend the whole nation. But marriage was so important to God that he said, a warrior, a soldier who is that valuable will not, in the middle of a war, go to war right when he gets married because the foundation of the marriage that is being established is that significant, that valuable, that important. That's big. That's giving up a lot during the middle of a war, yet God was establishing the value, the worthiness of marriage. There's this word joy. The original intent of this law was meant to do two things, to protect marriage and also to seek the flourishing of marriages because God knew how important this family unit is. And the good news is when family units are are broken and things happen, God works with us. God is trustworthy in every moment when it's within the intent and alignment of his design and when it's not. He's good, but his design still matters. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says this about this law. This double restriction, the certificate and the prohibition of remarriage, discouraged hasty divorces. What was happening here in Deuteronomy is God was making a law so that a man in a culture led by men could not just discard his wife and then later say, oh, you know what, you're worth it again. It was meant to protect So we looked back at the original design, the original heartbeat of the law. Let's go back again, or forward, I should say, to Matthew 5, to to Jesus' words here. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Even reading it the second time, kind of upon your initial observation, it can kind of seem like Jesus is being unfairly harsh to women. But he's actually doing the total opposite. He's providing a legal defense for women when they really had none at this time. Let me explain this a little bit. I'm going to read you a true statement from the Bible. Ready? The Bible says that if a man finds something displeasing and improper about his wife, he can divorce her and send her away from his home. It is just a fact. You cannot argue with me, unless you want to be wrong, that that is what the Bible says. God's word, let me just read it again to make sure you understand. I'll say it this way, because some people like to do this. God's word says... Literally, that if a man finds something displeasing and improper about his wife, he can divorce her and send her away from his home. That's not my interpretation. That's not me saying that. That's what this book, God's Word, says. And so generations go by and more generations and more generations. And eventually we arrive at Jesus' day And that's what's being communicated because the rabbis and teachers took a phrase that was actually said 
out of context and bent it and warped it and distorted it to fit whatever they thought was good for them in that very moment. So while a person can accurately state that the Bible says if a man finds something displeasing and improper about his wife, he can divorce her and send her away from his home, and that would be accurate, that is what the Bible says, but that is not what the Bible means. That's what one phrase says that could be manipulated, but that was not God's intent with that law, and men saw fit to twist and bend and distort that for their own reasons. That's why we actually have to be really careful with the phrase, the Bible says so. Because it's very often twisted and manipulated. And Satan himself quotes the scriptures intentionally to lead people astray. This book could not be more important. But we better be really intentional with how we interpret it and take it in. In the present moment for Jesus at this time that we're reading about, they had grown accustomed to this way of thinking about marriage and divorce. This was more of the norm than the original intent in Deuteronomy, and it was a terrible remodel of the original. And so that leads us to the third point. What does Jesus do? He de reconstructs. He looks back at the original intent. He compares that to the present moment's teachings and values, and then he remodels accordingly. What he says is, no, that is not what you are to do. You have heard it said, but I say to you. What they had actually done was taken this translation that if a man finds something displeasing about his wife, he can divorce her, and they took that to mean if a man, if a man finds anything displeasing about his wife, he can write her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus said no. It was so kind of audacious in this culture that specific examples recorded included if a wife burnt dinner, that could be considered displeasing and he could write her a certificate of divorce. Another actual example was if a woman aged quicker than her husband thought was good. That could be considered displeasing and improper, and he could write her a certificate of divorce. And then came Jesus, and he said, no, that's not what this law is about. That's not the heartbeat. The heartbeat is about protecting the longevity and health and joy of marriages. Jesus casts a vision in line with the vision that Deuteronomy casts for marriages, where a husband and wife fight for each other not use burnt rice and a few extra wrinkles as a reason to get divorced. What Jesus is doing is giving legal defense to women at a time when they had none. It's things like these that make de- and reconstruction important. And in this passage, you saw the three steps. Look back at God's original, his original design and intent. Compare that to the present moment's value and teachings. And then remodel accordingly. Let's look at One more example of this, just a little bit further in the same passage, verse 43. Jesus says this. Here we go again. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Same concept here, perhaps, in your Bible in verse 43, the love your neighbor part is in bold. That's because it is a direct quote from the Old Testament, the original law, the original instruction, which is found in Leviticus chapter 19. So we'll go back. We're going to look back at the original intent and design following this three-step process of Jesus. Leviticus 19, 18. Yahweh wrote, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Pretty straightforward. It's looking back at the original. Let me read uh, what Jesus says again here in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, let's go back for a second. Did the Leviticus passage say anything about hating your enemy? All it said was, love your neighbor and don't seek vengeance for yourself. Leave it to God. Leave it to the judicial system that is set up. So what that means is somewhere along the way from this Leviticus law that said, love your neighbor, somebody, probably an authority, saw fit to make an addition to the scriptures, to make an addition to the customs and values and teachings. And the addition was, hate your enemy. And we have a a tendency as humans to do this. If there's a little bit of a gap where we can sneak in our own agenda, we will. And what the teachers at this time did was say, it says love your neighbor. It doesn't say anything about your enemy very specifically in the letter of the law. And so we'll just add our own, hate your enemy. We have tendencies to make the scriptures fit our own desires, needs, vision, Again, this is why the interpretation process is important. So we looked back. The intent is to love people in your community. We assess that compared to the present moment, teachings, values, and there's this contradiction. There's this unhealthy addition to the the theological house, if you will. And what does Jesus do then? Step three, he remodels accordingly. Step one was to deconstruct. You have heard it said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What Jesus does is takes the original intent and heartbeat and pathway and direction of the law to love your neighbor, and he adds to it in the same lane and love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. It's in an addition, if you will, That makes sense. It fits within the original, within God's character. That doesn't change. In both of these cases, the case of divorce, the case of loving loving your neighbor, for generations, many generations, these things became customary. It was the norm to hate your enemy. It was the norm to divorce whenever you wanted to, if you were a man. And Jesus de-reconstructed because it wasn't in line with God's original intent. And those things were causing all kinds of harm and pain and did not look anything like God's goodness, his intent, his trustworthiness. Those things were real and harmful for them. And so for us, in the middle of this practice and series, my question is, what are they for us? What are they for you? What are the iatrogenic beliefs, traditions, values that you've picked up along the way, knowingly or unknowingly, or perhaps that you're now handing down, knowingly or unknowingly, that maybe have been twisted and distorted and bent from God's original design 
and intent. This week in your practice groups, you'll talk about that more in depth. If you're not in a practice group, I highly encourage you to to spend some time reflecting on those things through Jesus' three-step process. Look back. What did God design it to be like? What is human the way we were made to be in this area of life? I ask myself this question a lot. What does it look like for me to be a husband the way Jesus made me to be a husband, to be a father? Because I miss the mark all the time. As a friend, as a coworker, any aspect of life you apply this to, what is God's design? Then what is the present cultural moments, teachings, values, etc.? How do they compare? And how do we remodel to make it look like the way of Jesus? A key concept we have to understand is this. Culture changes, customs change, but God's character does not. Culture changes, customs change, but God's character does not. Now, he might interact differently and uniquely based on what love is in a a certain culture, in a certain moment, but his design in life and his character will not change. He's consistent. We see that time and again. Another, another thing to do this week in the, the midst of this practice is scouting. College football just started, which I'm thrilled about. It's very fun, been waiting a while. Any good team, not any good team, every single good team is going to scout their opponent. They're going to know what to expect. They're gonna know what to do in moments when they recognize what's about to happen. And it's actually the same for us when it comes to this D and reconstruction process. We should know, we should spend actually a little bit of time thinking about what Satan is going to do, about how he's going to seek to deceive us. And this would be a whole nother sermon that I don't have time for, but in three minutes, I'm gonna give you a couple quick thoughts of what as weird as it sounds, scouting Satan kind of looks like when it comes to to deconstruction. This is what he's going to do. Satan is going to try to use these iatrogenic beliefs that are gonna come in these forms. Church hurt and abuse, bad teaching, we've talked about some of these things, a compelling sinful desire, disillusionment with church, isolation or disconnection from meaningful community, a crisis or a transition, Satan will use those things to start your destruction, deconstruction process with no vision of a reconstruction process because we're vulnerable in those moments. Now again, to clarify, Jesus will use those same things, all of those listed that are real and often harmful and painful, but he's gonna cause deconstruction and then reconstruction. Satan won't though. So be on alert Scriptures say, be of sober mind, be on guard when you face any one of those things I listed because that's a time Satan wants to harm. Then what he'll do is probably take a scripture or a teaching or a value and twist it, bend it, distort it from God's original intent to cast a more compelling vision, seemingly, that will lead you astray. For instance, an example would be moving on from your wife because something dissatisfied you because another one looks better. That could be compelling. That could be a way Satan moves. Or causing you to seek vengeance, your own version of justice, because it just seems as if it would be so satisfying and it's right. 
instead of open-handedly trusting God when he says, leave vengeance to me and I'll take care of you. It could be a whole host of other things as well. Something we cannot forget is that Satan is a great salesman. But what he is selling will always break eventually. A.J. Swoboda puts it this way. I'll close with this. That's the difference between a surgeon and a coroner. Both know how to cut apart. Only one knows how to put back together and bring to life, and that is Jesus. My prayer for us through this is that we'd have the courage to let Jesus lead as we ask him to filter out what is not right and true and whole and noble and good and to let what remains be his design, his original intent, his love, his way. Let's pray. Jesus, we just ask you to move. We ask you to work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Free us from what is not right, what is not of you. Fill us with your spirit to rebuild what is true and good in every area of our lives. Help us to be human the way you've made us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here, seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay, let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.